Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, well, last week we began a series um, that we are walking through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, creed comes from the Latin credo, uh, meaning to believe. And so a creed is essentially a set of beliefs that inform how we live. And the Apostles' Creed then is a confession of Christian beliefs that guide our lives and unite us in faith. And so depending on what uh, background you grew up in in church, or maybe you didn't grow up at all in church, uh, but if you grew up in church, there's probably varying degrees to which the creed was a part of your corporate practice or personal practice of your uh, life of faith together. And uh, I asked uh, my life group uh, this week, I I asked that same question, uh, growing up, what was your exposure to the creed? And we had uh, everything from absolutely zero to it was a central part of our our life and faith together. Uh, But we want to take a a few weeks here to study the creed just as a way of not only reminding ourselves what is foundational to our faith and what it is that we believe, uh, but also just recognizing that it's these statements that, that really serve as an anchor uh, to unite us uh, and unite Christians both across time and expression. That no matter what expression your faith takes on, the, this, uh, these statements of belief, these confessions of belief really unite us um, as Christians. The first confession we looked at last week, which is how the creed begins. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And just as a quick recap, we discussed that confessing God as Father points us to the reality of the personal nature of who God is. Uh, that God is, is not just a, a spiritual idea or just a set of ideas, uh, but God is, is a person and he's personal, uh, which means he, when we cry, he is crying with us. When we mourn, he mourns with us. When we rejoice, he is right there with us. God is, is intensely personal in the way in which we, re- we relate to him and he relates to us. But we talked about how God is Father Almighty, that He is also powerful. And so he, His power is, is clothed or cloaked in fatherhood, which means He is both powerful and good, which means that we, He can be trusted and we can trust Him. And then we also, in this first line, this opening line of the creed, we confess God as creator. And we talked about last week how the scriptures and the creed don't elaborate or try to answer questions of how God created, uh, but only that God created. And, and, why he, and they point us to why he created, that he created the world in, in order to invite us to share in his love. And so creation itself is really an invitation to participate in the life of the divine. Uh, This week, though, we want to move to the second section of the creed, which is really a whole series of confessions about the person of Jesus. Uh, this is actually the biggest section of the creed, uh, which is really just a way of pointing us to the fact that Jesus uh, is, in fact, the center of our Christian faith. And so today's confession of belief uh, says this, We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so I'm calling this uh, the Christmas confession. Uh, and so we're, we're experiencing Christmas just a little bit earlier than the retailers this year. Uh, but I'm sure that Christmas will be flooding the shelves very, very soon. Uh, so with that in mind, I'd like to uh, invite you to recite the creed together. Uh, and then we'll say a word of prayer as we jump into exploring this, this second confession, this Christmas confession. So uh, let's say this out loud together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, 
his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in these moments, as we study this creed, this this anchor of our faith, we ask God that your Holy Spirit would be freely at work in this place to speak to us, to encourage us, to challenge us, and when necessary, Lord, convict us. Uh, God, be with us. Give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the key points of belief in Jesus uh, is that he is the only Son of God. Uh, In fact, this is what makes Christianity distinct from other world religions that would, uh, would give high marks for Jesus or recognize the importance of the life of Jesus historically. Uh, but the unique claim of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God. And we talked about how last week, Father, God the Father, is this relational term, this relational moniker, meant to really point us to the fact that God is is intensely relational. And here we come across, in the second confession of the creed, we come across another relational uh, term, this this term of the Son. Uh, But but the real purpose of the Son is is different than just simply showing us that God or Jesus is is personal. This time, uh, it's really meant to point us to something deeper. And that is that to be a son means to bear the family resemblance. And so in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read this, The Word, that is Jesus, He became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came to us from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this passage, along with other evidences in Scripture, and then this confession in the Creed, is really pointing us to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. That there is a, a sense in which it's trying to point out that Jesus bears the family resemblance to who God is. And so we started the creed in this confession with, with God who is Father Almighty and He is Creator. But that's really all that we know. We don't have a full picture of who this God is. We just have these beginning marks of His character. He's, he's powerful. He's Creator. He's personal in, in that He's Father. But now we, we, the, the creed continues. We we continue to dive into this, who is this, this triune God? And we recognize that Jesus is Son. And, and I, want to, I want to simply say this, that the, the, the idea of Jesus as Son helps us to recognize that Jesus gives God a face. That Jesus is what God looks like. In fact, we we talk about that a lot as sort of the beginning point of our theology. That if we want to know what this mysterious, this almighty God is like, we need to look no further than Jesus. 
And, and I think that's interesting because when we read the Old Testament, we really need to understand that Israel didn't have the full revelation of who God was. That in the Old Testament, as God is, is interceding and dealing with and interacting with the nation of Israel, this, this community, this group of people that he is, has brought up and called his own, in his interactions with them, he is revealing himself to them just in bits and pieces. But he's not really laying down, this is the fullness of who I am. I am. And so we really need to recognize that as we read the Old Testament, that, that uh, what Israel understood about God maybe not, doesn't always necessarily mean that that's in fact who God was. It means that's how they understood God to be based on a limited revelation of who he was. Well, then what God does is uh, when, when time itself was full, the Apostle Paul says, when, when time itself was about to burst, then God sends his own son. And And what he does in sending his son is he sends us someone who bears the family resemblance. But it's more than that. It's actually he sends us his son in order to give us a full revelation of his character. Jesus is God saying, this is what I am like. Um, And so what that means is, if our picture of who God is doesn't mesh with Jesus in his message, then it's time for us to rethink our picture of who God is. Because Jesus is the full revelation of God. The, 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 as the creed states, the Son of God. But I want you to notice that the creed doesn't just say we believe in Jesus. Uh, it goes on to say we believe in Jesus Christ. And have you ever asked yourself the question, why do we call Jesus Jesus Christ? Oh, well, the answer is easy. Christ is Jesus' last name. Uh, so, there, so there you have it. It's, all, it's very, very clear, and it's there in the scriptures, right? <laughs> no, it's not that. It's not that it's not it, that's not it at all. But rather, Christ is a title. That when we say Jesus Christ, we are trying to clarify who we mean or what we mean by this Jesus. And so we, call it, we, we relate to him as Jesus Christ. Christ is a title that literally means the anointed one. And, and Christ in the Greek comes from the Hebrew, and you've heard this word, Messiah. And so the Hebrew Messiah leads us to the Greek Christ, both of which mean the anointed one. And so when we say Jesus Christ, what we are really saying is Jesus, the anointed one. Now this is in fact a common title that was used throughout the scriptures. This idea of one who is anointed. In fact, it was used for prophets, priests, and kings uh, as they were entering into their, uh, their role or their service in, in uh, playing out those roles in their, in their own life of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, they were often before entering into those roles and responsibilities, they were often anointed. They were anointed ones for that role, for that task. And perhaps the most famous Old Testament king, King David, was also an anointed one. And he was chosen as a king despite being the youngest son, not the oldest son. Uh, And he was chosen and anointed as king as a child for his future kingship. But what we need to understand is that this idea of anointed one uh, doesn't isn't just a way of saying one who is blessed, but rather uh, it, it carries with it a sense of responsibility that the one who was anointed was in fact to work, was called to work in order to ensure justice for all people. 
That as king, as prophet, as priest, it was the, it was the role and responsibility to, in, to work to ensure justice or work toward justice for all people. But that wasn't even just it. It was as prophet, priest, and king, they were to also lead people to walk in the way of God. And so this, this anointing came with a responsibility for working toward justice and leading people in the ways of God. And so it wasn't just a way of saying one who is blessed, but it, but it actually meant one who has been chosen for a particular task and with, for a res- particular responsibility. In other words, the anointed one uh, was not called to be the secretary of afterlife affairs, uh, but rather one who was called to bring justice and lead people right now in the way of God. And what Jesus, is in fa- what Jesus is and what we find out through the scriptures and what the creed helps us to learn to confess is that Jesus is in fact the preeminent anointed one. He is the long-awaited and promised Messiah. Um, we see this, in fact, at the baptism, at Jesus' baptism by John. John says, John, there was a lot of rumors going around as John was participating in ministry and as he was baptizing people. There was a lot of uh, questions, a lot of rumors that this John, John the Baptist, might in fact be the long-awaited Messiah. And so John uh, says this. He says, I am not the Messiah. For one who is greater than I will come. One whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then when he sees Jesus that day at the bank of the river, he, he says, in fact, that's is the anointed one. There he is. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And Jesus says to John, it is your role then to baptize me. And John says, what are you, crazy? Why would I baptize you? And I want you to understand this. The baptism of Jesus was in fact his anointing as Messiah or Christ. It was his place and point of anointing where he would become our ultimate and preeminent prophet, priest, and king. And so the baptism of Jesus is is an anointing for him to then enter into ministry and do what, what God the Father had called him to do. And so when we confess, we believe in Jesus Christ we're, we're, we're confessing that we believe in Jesus, who is, in fact, the long-awaited, promised, anointed one. But the creed goes on to say, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And so Lord is also a title. Uh, Lord is not just uh, another name to kind of throw out there, but rather it's another way of, of drilling down and defining who it is that we're talking about when we talk about this Jesus. And so Christ is a title, but Lord is also a title. And Lord has this long and rich history, beginning with the name of God, Yahweh. Uh, that at, at, the most, at the simplest form, at the most primitive form, this, the, the name for the Almighty God, the Creator, was, was in fact Yahweh. That was how the people of Israel would refer to God the Father. He was Yahweh. And, and another, what that ultimately comes to, to, to point to in Hebrew, we, we begin with Yahweh, then we eventually move to Adonai, and then we eventually move to Elohim. And then all of these Hebrew words can be translated in English as Lord. 
And so anytime you're reading the Old Testament and you see the all caps Lord, uh, that is in the Hebrew Yahweh. Uh, But anytime it's not all caps, it could be either Adonai, it could be Elohim. But all of these words kind of combine to give us a sense of what it means to call Jesus Lord. What it means ultimately is, is that we mean Jesus is present and he is sovereign and he is over all. And so to confess Jesus Christ as our Lord is in fact a confession that he is over all and he is sovereign in our lives. That ultimately it is him who is in control. Now I want you to understand that when we say, oh God is in control or Jesus is in control, that is not code for saying Jesus has caused this heartache in your life. That is not code for saying Jesus has brought about this disease, this hardship, this circumstance. Because sometimes we give a lot of credit to Jesus when, when he doesn't deserve the credit, right? Uh, but rather, it's, it's, uh, it's our own brokenness being played out in our own lives that, that in many ways, we, we live out the consequences of our own brokenness. We, uh, we live out and, and um, are, are sort of victims of, of other people's brokenness and sin. And so there's all this, these kinds of circumstances that pop up in our lives. And what we mean when we say Jesus is in control is not that Jesus has caused this, but rather that Jesus is still Lord over this. Which is, in fact, to say that despite whatever is going on, God can move and work and bring redemption and reconciliation and healing out of it. That's ultimately what we're talking about when we say God is sovereign or Jesus is sovereign. And when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that is ultimately what we are confessing is that he is sovereign over all. He is present with us. In fact, there's a passage of scripture in Acts chapter 2 that places these two titles uh, explicitly to Jesus, and and it puts them right together. Acts chapter 2 verse 36 says, Therefore let all of Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. And so when we confess these beliefs about Jesus... When we, when we attach these titles to the person and the name of Jesus, I want us to understand that what it's helping us to do is point us to the place that Jesus should have and in fact does have in our lives. That God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. In our confession in the creed, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. These are not just flippant words, but rather these are a recognition of the place of Jesus Christ in our life. That as Christ, Jesus is in fact the one on whom we depend. He is the one, on who, he is the one whom we need. That when we confess Jesus as Christ, it is, it is one and the same of saying, God, we depend on you. And Jesus, you are the one that I need. He is the anointed Messiah, capable of freeing us from the grip of sin, delivering us from slavery, and leading us into the justice-filled way of God. In fact, 
Confessing Jesus as Christ is a way of saying, to the best of my ability, in the best way that I know how, and I may not always do this perfectly, in fact, I won't always do this perfectly, but with all of my knowledge and with all of my uh, intent, I'm going to walk in the way of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. Because remember, the role, the job, the responsibility of the anointed one was to work for the justice of all people, but then to uh, encourage them to walk in the way of God. And so Jesus, as the ultimate, the long-awaited, the promised Messiah, is, it is his job and it is his role, it is his responsibility, it is his privilege to do so. But we are his people. And so we are to walk in his ways, we are to walk behind him as he leads in ensuring justice for all people and in walking in the ways of God. And so this isn't just simply a, a flippant confession or this isn't just a way of saying, oh, Jesus has two names. It is a way of saying that as Christ over my life, as Messiah, I'm going to do my best to walk in his ways and to work for justice for people. And then as Lord, sovereign over all, fully present in our life, confessing Jesus then as Lord is a way of saying that we are to place him first in our lives. We are to recognize not only that he is sovereign over all, but, but then to confess and to live as though he actually is sovereign, sovereign over all. And so we are to place him first in our lives. We are to give him our allegiance and our allegiance alone, that there is no one and nothing that comes before him, that our allegiance goes to him and to his kingdom. That it's a way of confessing and recognizing that it is in him that we live and move and have our being. And so again, the confession that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, is not lip service or dry words, but rather a reminder of the place of Jesus in our lives. You see, what I hope to do throughout this series is not just sort of teach about the origins or the mechanics of the creed, but rather talk about the ways in which the creed, along with the witness and the evidence of Scripture, can help solidify our own faith and our own life, that it becomes a practice of faith for us, and that, it, that we can bring it down to a very practical level, that confessing this is a confession of where Jesus uh, in his place in our life. And then just as we were getting a handle on this God, who's Father Almighty, who is creator, just as, a, as we were beginning to understand that he has a son, that this is what he looks like, this is the place of Jesus in our life, and we feel like we can just almost totally explain this God, we get to the Christmas confession. Uh, this confession that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and then born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, You've heard the old cliche, God works in mysterious ways. And I would say that when it comes to Christmas, this is absolutely true. (laughs) That God does, in fact, work in mysterious ways. Uh, Can I just say to you uh, that Christmas doesn't make any sense? (laughs) I I mean, the story of Christmas is just, it makes absolutely no sense at all. No logical sense. It doesn't make sense that God would choose uh, an unmarried teenage daughter, to, teenage uh, as the mother of his son. That, that doesn't make sense. If I were the God of the universe, I would have done something a little different there. Um, it doesn't make sense that the royal announcement of his birth uh, 
would be made to shepherds watching over their flocks by night in the middle of nowhere. Like nobodies. That doesn't make any sense. But it's also quite a mystery as to how Jesus can be conceived in a virgin. I mean, the, the story of Christmas is a story of mystery and wonder. In fact, what I'm working on for an Advent series this year, which will follow our study of the Apostles' Creed, is, um, is, is just a, a series called The Unexpected Jesus, The Unexpected Christmas, just exploring all of these sort of unexpected elements of the Christmas story. It simply does not make any sense. And I think one of the big temptations uh, for the church today uh, is to try to make everything about our faith absolutely logical, rational, explainable, uh, put in a boxable. <laughs> you know, like, like we just feel like that if we can't, if we can't just sort of explain everything away uh, through logic and rationality, uh, then it can't be true. And, and we're really tempted to sort of practice and, and live out a faith that, that we're, we're consistently just, just kind of pressing uh, uh, and, and pushing to just explain everything. And I, I certainly feel like there's a place for logic and rationality in our faith. But there has to be room also for mystery and the unexplainable. And so this, this, in this Christmas confession... Uh, about conception by the power of the Holy Spirit and then uh, birth through a virgin. I, I think it's an opportunity for us to just embrace the mysterious nature of who God is and how God works. I, I, think, I, I like this because we need to be able to hold together a faith that is at the very same time both logical and mysterious. But we also need to, we need to recognize that, that faith in Christ is both rational and unexplainable at the very same time. And, and we need to begin to hold these two together. Because if we don't hold these two together, sort of this, this logical nature of faith, this, this rational belief that makes total absolute sense, and, and hold that together with mystery. Because if we don't hold those two together, we'll, we'll be tempted to think that we have God all figured out. And we'll have God just kind of neatly placed in a box uh, and, and we'll just be able to go about life with all of the answers. And, and I, would, I, would, I would submit to you that if we live our life not recognizing the mysterious nature of, of faith and the practice of faith, that the first time we come across a struggle, a circumstance, a heartbreak or heartache, that we can't find answers for, then the whole system of our faith will crash down. It will just, it, it won't be able to bear the weight of the mystery of life. But if we hold together that there are parts of our faith that are absolutely logical and make total sense, historically verifiable, but we hold that together with the parts of the gospel story that are mysterious and unexplainable, then that gives room for faith in the midst of uncertainty. 
But I really think that if we just get to a point where we feel like we have all God totally figured out, then one of two things will happen. If we come to a place where we feel like we have God just totally figured out, we will either write him off because a God who can be fully explained is not worthy of my worship, or we will try to manipulate him into doing what, doing what we think God ought to do. God, I have you all figured out. I've reduced you to a level of formulas and, and uh, ideas and principles. And so now, based on this, this, and this, I expect you that the outcome will be this. And so once we come to a place where we feel like we have God just fully figured out, we'll either write him off as not being worthy of our worship, or we'll begin to enter into a relationship with him that looks a lot more like manipulation than worship and adoration. And so I, I simply just want to say to you today that, that we have sort of all the evidence piled up for logical belief in this Jesus who is the only son of God. And then we come across the Christmas confession. <laughs> and we're just, it just points us to the mystery of who God is and the way in which he works. And I would just, I would just encourage you to not try to resolve that conflict or that tension, but rather just learn how to live with it. How do we live with the tension of a God who both can be explained and understood, but only to a certain degree because there is still mystery? I would say to you, this is part of what we do each week when we gather around the table for communion. Uh, logically, this can be perfectly explained. We, uh, we gather around the Lord's table to remember his death and sacrifice for us. Uh, because when at the Last Supper he established this practice of taking bread and saying this is the body of Christ broken for you and then taking juice or wine and saying this is the blood of Christ that has been shed for you. And it just serves as a place to remember. Uh, that's very logical, very tidy, can be explained nice and neat. But that's not all the table is. That when we come to the table, it signifies for us a unity in the body of Christ. Um, it unifies us with those who have been gathering around the Lord's table for centuries. But it's not just, it doesn't just unify the church. It, it's also in taking the bread and the juice, we are in fact participating in and taking in the very life of Christ, that when we come to the table, there is something very, very logical and very, very mysterious happening at the very same time. And so we, we practice this week after week after week after week. Because if it was just logical, if all it was, a, if all it was, was a chance to remember, then I suppose that once a month, once a quarter, might suffice. But there is a mystery to what happens when we gather around the table that calls us and invites us into the weekly practice and rhythm of participating in the life of Christ through this. And I would submit to you that when we hold together both the logic and the mystery, what it leads us to ultimately is worship and adoration. It leads us to worship and adoration of this God whom we know but we cannot fully know. 
This God whom we understand when we look at Jesus Christ, but we can't understand fully. This, this God whom is still veiled to a certain degree that we don't yet fully know. It leads us into enough logic to place our faith in him, but enough mystery to not feel like we haven't figured out. 